Hear the word of God from the book of Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, located on page 807 in the Pew Bible. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, you can just feel the excitement around the campus today. I mean, four baptisms, the faith, uh, the blessing of the faith builders, the faith steps. This is an exciting day. Not only do we have the four baptisms here, We've had 10 baptisms today, all babies, so this is just an exciting day, and we are glad to celebrate this continued journey with all of you as your babies become friends to one another and become companions as they learn to know who Christ is for themselves. Friends, would you join me in prayer? Oh, holy and gracious God, I pray that you would help us set aside all those things that are in the way of what you would have us here this day. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, as Debbie mentioned, the Nicaragua mission team got home last night, having had a wonderful week there. And all during the week, each day, I was wondering, 
I wonder what they're doing. I wonder who they're meeting. I wonder how they're sharing love and receiving love in that place. I also, this week, each day, have been wrestling just a little bit with this particular text from Matthew. And then about midweek, it occurred to me that I happen to have a resource that I bought many years ago when I lived in Nicaragua, and it's a four-volume set called The Gospel in Solentanami. There are four of these different ones, but Solentanami is a place in Nicaragua. It is a remote group of islands, an archipelago, in the middle of huge Lake Nicaragua, and only a few of the islands are inhabited. But in the 1970s, um, Pastor uh, Cardinal, Ernesto Cardinal, uh, gathered a group for worship there. They had a thriving monastery, and they didn't just, well, it was most unusual, because these were poor campesinos, people who worked the farms and worked as fisher folk. They gathered together, and they studied the scripture, and he would open it up to them, but not after the sermon. He would open it up to them in place of the sermon. So it was like a conversation for the entire congregation. Well, it was a new way of thinking about it, having actually the scriptures in the hands of the people. In the 1970s, that was becoming more and more popular among the Catholic communities of the world, and particularly in poorer countries. And so the numbers grew. There were, at the height of it, about 1,000 people that gathered there. And they would record these conversations and then put them down to see what the Spirit was saying to them in that context. Well, I was delighted to realize that one of the parables was our parable from Matthew 25. And so this is how it starts out. You have William, who's a poet, and he says, That's a lousy parable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, I don't know about you, but... I kind of started off a little bit like that myself because it's not exactly an easy one to think about and preach about. And without missing a beat, Pastor Cardinal said to him, and why is it lousy? And William and Aidan and Teresita began to talk about how bad it is to speculate with money. And they talked about how hard it is to work and work and then have to hand over the profits to the owner of the money or the money lender in their own context. They were in the middle of the beginnings of a revolution. And so it's not uncommon or unusual that they would be hearing the Spirit speak to them in a very particular way as they looked at this particular text, as they tried to think about what does it mean to live in the reign of God even now. So I share this with you. Because as I was reading their conversation this week, I was reminded how it is that when we hear a parable, it has what we think of it has a lot to do with the way and where we are hearing it from. It's kind of like a girlfriend of mine who's somewhat large, and one day she and I were at the grocery store, and she reached down to buy a pair of pantyhose. She looked at it, and it said, right there on the packaging, one size fits all. She looked at it, and she looked at me. She looked at it, and she said, that's not true. That's a lie. One pair of pantyhose does not fit all women. So with that logic in mind, 
One way of reading the scripture, even one particular scripture, doesn't fit all people or all context. So how is it that you are hearing this parable today? How am I hearing it? Um, because if indeed one, one way of looking at it doesn't fit us all, then we've got to listen for what the Spirit is saying to you this day. Now, if you might remember, we are in the middle of a three-week sermon series on Matthew 25. And it's kind of interesting to me that here we are right towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and this is the third of four stories right in a row where Jesus speaks of the impending but uncalendared return of Christ. All four of these stories center on the return, the master, the bridegroom we talked about last week, or the king, and also speaks of the judgment that will come with that return. It's as if these stories give those of us who are listening, who are waiting, some clues about how we are to live our lives right now in this time of waiting. So let's listen to what the Spirit might be saying to us. From from my studies of this, I have seen that many times pastors will preach about this text being an encouragement for followers of Christ to figure out what their talents are and to use those gifts and abilities for God. I mean, if you think of it this way, then it teaches that all of us are gifted, have something to give. We have been given abilities and talents. All of us have at least one And so we are encouraged to think about what are our talents? What are your talents when you think about it? Is it your ability to to turn a few simple ingredients into an amazing dish? Or is it your empathetic ear? Or your ability to make things grow? Or your kind word that you offer? Or your gift for making money? Or your hospitality? What is your gift? What are your gifts? Because you do have them. And so often it's easier for us to name the gifts we don't have when we see them in someone else. But really, we are to think of the gifts we have been given and figure out how we are using them or not. How we are using them to multiply and build the reign of God. Figure out your talent and use it shrewdly and generously for the glory of God. So that's That's definitely one major point that can be made from this text. But what else? I mean, who's the master in the story? And what kind of master is he? Uh, Mary Lou read one translation, but this one says, The kingdom of God is like a man who was leaving on a trip, and he called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one he gave five valuable coins, to another two, another one. And he gave to each according to that servant's ability. And then he left on a journey. Well, if you think of the master, this man, I think he's a pretty charitable guy. For if we think of the master as God, which many suppose, then it speaks about God being incredibly generous. And who, God who has extravagantly entrusted extraordinary wealth and power and freedom and responsibility for the three servants. For you see, a talent was an, or uh, originally it was a piece of money, a unit of gold or silver. And some translations say it weighed between 70 to 130 pounds. It was an enormous piece of money. 
Fred Craddock says that a talent was not the ability to sing or paint, but a large sum of money, approximately the amount a laborer would receive for 15 years of hard work. By today's standards, eight talents that he gave out would be the equivalent to more than a quarter of a million dollars. Hence, each gift of talent of a talent was enormous. And the guy who got five of them, that's like 75 years of salary for a day laborer. So yes, our master, this master entrusts this gift to these three servants, and I think he expects a considerable return on his investment. But that's not all. He doesn't just graciously give them this. He selflessly steps aside. He doesn't play helicopter parent or helicopter master. Rather, he limits his involvement, goes away, allowing them the ability to grow on their own and to use their gifts and see what their creative minds can come up with, to take risks and explore life. The master self-limits his involvement, giving those three servants the ability to grow. Kind of like God giving us some choice about it in our lives, don't you think? As a parent, I know this is particularly hard. For just this week, one of our kids who's at school away in North Carolina has had a terrible case of the flu. And it was all I could do not to get in the car on Friday morning and drive to North Carolina and make sure he's okay. But I have to trust that he does know how to walk in the door of a walk-in clinic. Yes? I have to trust that. Even so, I called a college suite mate of mine, who's a doctor in that town, just to say he might be calling you if he really feels badly. But God, the greatest parent, demonstrated love, not always by doing, but by limiting God's self and letting us, his children, learn. I'm aware that this phrasing only deals with the first two verses of our Uh, pericope, our passage, so let's just go on a little farther. I think this text also is trying to teach us, or Jesus is using it to explore the role of risk in the life of faith. Let's look at those first two servants. Even though there weren't clear instructions given, they seem to know what they do to do. They use their own minds and make money. They make a profit. They double the gift that was given to them, they double it. And so Jesus, or the master, comes to them and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But that third servant, he's hesitant and shy. He's timid. He's the kind of man who wears both a belt and suspenders. Maybe he would do okay if he had a lot of instruction or if he had a lot of clear guidance there. But fear and distrust paralyze the man. He is risk-averse. He plays it safe. He doesn't trust the master's invitation, but instead he turns and blames the master almost. He says, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. I was afraid. That about sums it up, doesn't it? I was afraid. Fear. It stops us in our tracks. 
Fear destroys our dreams. We fear failure. We fear people will laugh at us and not accept us. We fear being alone. We fear being left out. We, will you fill in the blank? Because we all have them. Fear drives us underground and makes us overly cautious and we bury our talents. Did that third slave think he was unworthy, too small, too unimportant for this particular responsibility? But whatever it was, he buried his talents in the ground. He doesn't use them or develop them because he is afraid. And this fear, it makes him skew or misinterpret the situation. Fear makes him blame the master, the very one who has blessed him with this enormous gift. Clearly, this third servant does not see in himself what the master sees in him. I think a lot of us are like that. We don't see in ourselves what the master sees in us, which is to live for him The master is asking him to live for him, to multiply his gifts and his talents to the service of the greater good, to help usher in the reign of God even now. So what about us? Do you ever think that you are unworthy of such a gift, such an awesome responsibility? When asked, are you going to trust the master's trust of you? Are we as a congregation going to trust the master's trust of us? Are we going to take risks for God? Are we going to risk our love and compassion? Are we going to risk forgiving someone who has wronged us? Are we going to risk loving those who seem unlovable? Are we going to risk being financially generous for God? Having faith, it's more than just saying some nice words. It's about risking our talents and our resources in the service of God. This is a defining moment in the life of that third servant, and it's a really big deal. Following Christ is always risky, and it can be life-changing, but our servant is too scared to act. Can you think of some defining moments in your own life? Perhaps getting married was one of those. That can be risky and fulfilling, but a risky endeavor. Adopting or fostering a child, having a child and raising it, finding a new way to serve right here can be a risky thing. Going on a mission can be risky. Taking a new job in a new town. What is it that God might be calling you to right now? Something new, something new to risk. These defining moments require some risk. For life is full of risk, and sometimes, if we really feel like God is calling us there, we just have to go for it. Because isn't that what the, two, the first two servants did? Surely there was the possibility that they would lose it all, but they didn't. They took a risk and went for it. The major themes of the Christian faith cannot be understood or lived without some risk. Yes, we will make mistakes. I know I will. I have. I will continue to, as you will. But don't you imagine that more than the sheer number of accomplishments, the Lord values the faithfulness to the task. 
Here's an invitation for you to ponder. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? I want to share with you an alternative ending to this text. Imagine it went this way. Suppose the third servant did not hide his gift. Let's say he took a million dollars and built a shelter for the homeless. He fed the poor. He gave job training and job literacy. He he taught literacy, and he told them all about God's love. And some of those folks absolutely flourished, but others, they were not grateful, and they did not get any better. And then one night, a gang of them came in and broke broke in and stole everything and burned it to the ground. And right then, the master came back. And the third servant, having heard the fine reports of his friends, had to step forward and say, I have nothing. I've lost everything that you've given me. And what would the master say? I think the master would say, well done, good and faithful servant. I will give you more. Come now into the joy of my presence. So do you still think it's a lousy parable? It is an interesting one. It does give us some clues about the ways to live this life right now, risking taking a chance for God, for one another, for our own growth. I don't think it's a lousy parable, for it reminds me to recognize that great risk that the Master has made on my behalf and on your behalf. And it calls me to have courage to live as a faithful follower even now in the midst of whatever is going on in our lives. To trust what the master sees in me. I hope you will trust what the master sees in you. And recognize this enormous gift of love that has been given. And this parable, it challenges me to take risks for the kingdom Recognizing that I will indeed make mistakes, but faithfulness to the task is very, very important. Would you pray with me? Oh, holy God, you have given us an incredible gift, this precious gift of life. The talents that we have, the friendships, the love, all of it, help us to not be so fearful that we would hide it. Help us to be bold in our sharing of the gospel. Help us to be bold in sharing your love with this world, knowing that you walk with us on the journey. You give us encouragement even as we give one another encouragement. We can continue to share your love. May it be so. Amen. Amen. Friends, let us continue our worship by receiving our morning offering.